Please stand with me, if you're able, as I read uh, the text from Scripture, Ezra 1, 1 through 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Seated. Oops. We're reading through the Bible this year together as a church family. Uh, we've preached through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Rifle did a great job preaching for me while I was out of town preaching through a psalm. So each day we read a portion of Scripture, and then we read a psalm and pray a psalm together. And I'm preaching from those texts that we're reading to help encourage us uh, to continue that reading. I'm, I'm excited about it and still remain uh, passionate about reading God's Word together as a family. So our text today was in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We will be exploring Ezra and Nehemiah together. Uh, The book was actually a unified book. It was one book up until, uh, you know, fairly recently. Uh, And so in the Hebrew Bible, it is still one one book. And and so we're going to be looking at all of it together. I think it's important to read it. It's all about kind of a a portion of time uh, in God's redemptive history. So so what does that mean? It means that God uh, created the the heavens and the earth. So there's creation, and then there was a fall. Everybody believes things exist. They, They have a story of creation. The Bible has its story of truth about the creation that we believe as Christians. And then there was the fall. So, and everybody has believes that something's wrong with the world. They may explain it in a lot of different ways, but Christianity explains it through Genesis 3 and the fall. And then most of the Bible is about redemptive history, like how is God going to redeem everything? And then you have the close uh, where there is new creation. So the Bible begins with words like in the beginning, and at the end of Revelation 22, it ends with the new Eden. Uh, so you, you begin with the beauty and the goodness of creation, and you end with God restoring it. And so the Bible is a story. It's telling a story. And so we want to look at Ezra and Nehemiah and say, where does that fit in to the story? So we will look that it is about the return and the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple Uh, They are returning from uh, Babylon, who has taken Judah captive, and rebuilding by this amazing proclamation from King Cyrus of Persia, who is now the world-ruling empire. Then we will see that these leaders that come back in these waves, there's basically three key figures, uh, Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And there are these three key figures that come in waves uh, sent by uh, different kings of Persia over a period of around 100 years. 
sent in these different waves to do different things in rebuilding not just the temple but Jerusalem and all of Israel, the land of Israel. But we will see that each one of these leaders faced opposition. Evan said that this morning. He wanted prayer because he knows in going uh, he will face opposition. And so they faced opposition. He can be right in the center of God's will, just like Ezra and Nehemiah were in Zerubbabel, and each one of them faced opposition. So just because you're right in the center of God's will doesn't mean you're not going to have warfare and spiritual warfare and the enemy coming after you. It's actually a sign that you're right in the center of his will when you do have warfare and opposition. So they face that, and they overcome And it's great, and we can learn lessons from that. Why? Because as we look at this, it fits into the category of the wisdom literature. We can gain wisdom from these these leaders, what they did, how they did it, what they did right, what they did wrong, and how God worked in their lives. So we can learn from that. But we we see that there's kind of to each ending of their stories, there's kind of it's kind of anticlimactic. That means that basically the key is that when the temple's rebuilt, when the wall's rebuilt by Nehemiah and, and everything seems to be there, God's presence doesn't return and there is no continuation of the divinic monarchy. There is no king that begins to rule over the city. So they're looking for the return of the king. They're looking for the return of the presence of God and that doesn't happen and that just kind of ends the last books of the Bible. We're at the last books of the Old Testament scripture, and then we just fall into periods of, of about 400 years of silence, uh, really, before another prophet comes on the scene, and that's John the Baptist. He comes uh, out of nowhere, uh, prophetically, all these years of waiting later. So the journey we are on today is to place Ezra and Nehemiah in this biblical story, learn things about the Bible, gain wisdom, but also see the main focus the main point of the story. Like you might be asking, why Ezra and Nehemiah? Why is it in the Bible? Why should I care about it today? And we want to care uh, care about it because it is an important integral part of Scripture. All Scripture, when when Paul wrote that to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped. Uh, so we're, we're thoroughly equipped by all Scripture. And he was referring to the Old Testament Scripture that existed uh, at that time. And that included Ezra and Nehemiah. So we know that it is important. And we know when we look at the Bible as a narrative, as a story, as a whole, and, and that God is redeeming us through his story, through his history, then we want to place why is this important? When is it and why is it important uh, to the story that God is telling? It's good to know what that story is. So we have in the beginning this proclamation of Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And I want to just start right there, stop right there. Ezra 1.1. 1, 1 that the word of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's why this is happening. That's why Cyrus 
is just all of a sudden go, hey, I want to build a big temple for God, and I'm the ruler of the king over all the earth right now. I'm the great ruling empire, and I want to build for God this. You know, what's doing that? I mean, it very specifically says in the text that God's spirit is stirring him to do this. So these waves are sent, and Zerubbabel comes in Ezra 1 through 6, and he begins this rebuilding of the temple process, and he works in it. And then Ezra continues about Ezra coming, and he comes and begins to teach uh, the word of the God and the restoration of their faith. And then Nehemiah comes, and he rebuilds this wall of protection all around the city of Jerusalem, so the city at large is, at protect, uh, is, at, is protected. And we learn things from each of their lives, but we see that this is happening because God has promised it. That's the reason to the story. That's the reason for this happening. It's because God promised it through his prophet. He said that they would return after 70 years of exile to Babylon. And after that period of time, boom, they're returning. Why? Cyrus, you know, why is he all? And not only that, he's supporting it. He's funding it. He's helping the rebuilding. And after him, Artaxerxes and Darius, the next Persian king who sends Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah's cupbearer to, to him. He's a trusted uh, co- uh, confidant. You know, they were. And, and he sends him and supports him and writes decrees about how he's going to support him. Why all this? I want to say it's to fulfill the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. God is always working through redemptive history to uh, fulfill his promises. He makes a covenant promise, and he works, and he fulfills it. He makes a promise, and he fulfills it. And that's what's happening in the Word of God. If you don't understand that, a lot of times you might misread the Word of God, misread the story. The story is God is making promises, and he's making them through the prophets, speaking through the prophets, and then he's fulfilling it. So what this does, and what this leads us to do, and what we're doing today is we're saying, well, if God fulfilled that right off the bat, Ezra 1.1, what's the rest of this story doing? It's making you look with great hope and saying, what else is he going to fulfill? What else have the prophets said that he still hasn't fulfilled? And what is he going to fulfill? See, like the continuation of the story. Yes, this is happening. Jeremiah said 70 years, and sure enough, we're 70 years. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, we're going back. But what are we going back to do? And with what kind of hope? It's not a hope in them, and it's not a hope in Cyrus, and it's not a hope in all these kings. It's a hope in the word of God that God has said it, and he's going to do it. And way back in Numbers, this is scripture I memorized as a kid, and it says, has not God said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Will he not make it good? You know, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. So God doesn't have to do that, because what he says he's going to do, he's going to fulfill it, and it's going to happen. And so What this does is cause us to look with great hope to everything else that God has promised. Some of the things that he has uh, promised is a future messianic king. That was one of the things that I said. Uh, Also, when you look at uh, when they they built the uh, tabernacle, what happened? It was powerful, man, when they finished it and completed it and they had, you know, God, you know, told Moses, instructed him. What happened? The presence of God came. 
and a, and a cloud, you know, upon the place. And he inhabited, this is where he was going to meet with people when they f- went through exactly the way that he told them to go through and build this structure, exactly had the priests and the right sacrifice and to come in to the holy place and then come into the holy of holies. What was he going to do? He was going to meet with his people on earth. It was a place where he was going to dwell and meet with his people and his presence was there. What happened when Solomon, you know, uh, with the word of God, it was David's heart to do it, but God allowed and, and instructed Solomon to do it to build this grand temple, the tabernacle made permanent like in Jerusalem, this great temple. What happens? I mean, the presence of God comes so heavily that the priest can't stand to minister. That means stand up, not can't stand to do it, but just they, they fall, their knees buckle. The presence of God comes so mightily. And what happens when Ezra and Nehemiah get this finished? That doesn't happen. Presence doesn't come. There's, there's an anticlimax to Ezra and Nehemiah that we need to look at. And it's pointing to, that's how I ended up titling this, is pointers. Uh, it can be fulfillment. The scripture's fulfilled. The word of God is fulfilled. This is a favorite word of Matthew. He uses it uh, uh, over and over and over again, this word fulfilled. He lists an Old Testament scripture, and then he says Christ has fulfilled it. He lists an Old Testament scripture and says Christ has fulfilled it, fulfilled. So fulfill is the word you like, and it's biblical, and it's good, and it's in our text. It was fulfilling the word of the prophet Jeremiah. That's a great word. I've used that word a lot. But I just thought of pointers, like there are pointers. Uh, Another thing that the Bible uses in in text is types and shadows. So there's types and shadows in the Old Testament, and the substance comes. That means the reality, the full reality comes in Christ. Uh, So Colossians talked about uh, shadows and substance and them being fulfilled in Christ. And that's what the biblical story is. That's the biblical narrative of, of redemptive history as God's telling a story. And so when we look at these pointers and we realize that didn't quite happen, it was kind of, it was great. We learned lessons from uh, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and, and about their lives and about them facing battles and facing opposition. But what happens? You know, why the, 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 the anticlimax to what they had accomplished? And it begins to point. We realize it's a pointer. It's pointing to something great. They did accomplish God's will for their time in their era. But it was pointing to something greater that hadn't happened. It might be uh, Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Looking for that messianic king. Hosea 3, 4 and 5. uh, 4 through 5 is really great. For the children of Israel shall... Abide many days without a king. That's what they're doing. They're still abiding without a king. And without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. They lost all that in Babylon. They came back and built it and reestablished sacrifice, all these things, but they still existed without a king. But Hosea 3 5 goes on to say, And afterward shall the children of Israel return, and they do, and seek the Lord their God, and they do with the help of Ezra, Nehemiah, and good leaders. Um, like Evan said, you know, we need that great good leadership. And they had it in those men. And they inspired them to do what Hosea had prophesied. So these fulfillments. Israel returned, they sought the Lord, and David their king. They were seeking for that king to return. And it says, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Well, where's that part? That last part of that king, where is that? 
That's not there. The other is, they returned, like Hosea said. They sought the Lord, like they said, but where's David, their king? That promise that God made to David to to have a, a son of his sit on the throne forever. Where is that messianic ruler king? That's the anticipation. They all know it. That king hasn't come. We have no king. Uh, 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 Nehemiah says we're still in Nehemiah 9. He reviews all of redemptive history. So if you want to review the history of Israel, read Nehemiah 9. He starts with creation. Nehemiah 9 starts with creation. There's a God who created. Then he goes on and talks about the covenant made to Abraham. Then he talks about the covenant made to Moses through the law. And then he talks about the covenant made to David. Well, he's fulfilling that covenant to Abraham. He's fulfilling that covenant uh, to Moses through the law. Ezra reestablishes all of that. But where's the promise to David? Where's the messianic king? That's what this story is fulfilling in part, but it's pointing to something greater. Like there's still something greater out there, an anticipation, a longing is still there. That is just like, well, they did all this, and it was miraculous, and they overcame all the opposition, but ah. Where is uh, Jeremiah, his other prophecies, Jeremiah 23, 5-6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Where is David's righteous branch? Where's that, Jeremiah? We get the word of God is fulfilled, and then we have returned. We have done all this, but where's the righteous branch? Uh, and he, Jeremiah goes on to say, shall reign as king and deal wisely. Where is he? And execute justice and righteousness in the land. Where is he? We're still under, Nehemiah says, we're still slaves under. When he finishes in, in Nehemiah 9, the redemptive history of Israel, when he gets to the bottom, he says, yeah, we're here. Yeah, the kings have accepted us. Yes, this is where we're at in redemptive history. But we're still nothing but slaves of the king of Persia. Because they were there, and when they prospered, and their fruit trees blossomed, and, you know, what did, what did the king do? Go, oh, good, I planted this, now I will take. And, and the cream of the crop was all taken. They were nothing but, you know, still pawns, you know, for the king of Persia. They realized they were still slaves to this king, taxed, and, 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 and the things just taken from them, the whole cream of of the crop of Israel was to uh, have the king of Persia and his land prosper. And Nehemiah acknowledges this at the end of, the, of that redemptive history. And, and there, so there's this longing for, for this Jeremiah 23, 5, 6, like where is this prophecy fulfilled? Where this king shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And it says, in the days, of, in, in the days Judah will be saved. We're not fully saved. We're not fully delivered. We are still enslaved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That isn't there. His presence and his kingship has not returned. I love Zechariah the prophet. Uh, He was prophesying at this time. Uh, of Nehemiah and the rebuilding. So you have these different prophets that are coming in and prophesying. And we will read those too because we're at the end of the Old Testament story. So we still have those on our our reading list. And I will be to her a wall. This is Zechariah 2.5. A wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Was he the glory in her midst? No. The glory had not returned. Zechariah 8, 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country, which he did, led them out, and from the west country, he gathered them all around. 
and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Did a lot of that. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. You're looking and longing still for that. So we begin with this hope in mind that Ezra and Nehemiah is pointing us. We see that he fulfilled, and they return, and this is Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel's role, but that they're pointing to something much greater. They're pointing to the return of the king. John the Baptist begins to make a way for the Lord and prophesy, make way straight the way of the Lord, and he builds that pathway, and Jesus comes on the scene, and the presence of the Lord comes back to the temple in Jesus. He walks into that temple, and the presence and the cloud and the glory of God returns with Jesus into that temple. That temple that Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and them rebuilt and that Herod had improved and, and uh, you know, expanded and made more glorious. Never anything like Solomon's, but a restored temple that was there for Jesus to walk into. And it angered him to see what was going on in that temple. And Jesus overturned tables And he said, this is my house. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And when they argue with him and what gave him authority to do that, he said, here's my authority to you. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. There's my sign to you. There's my proof to you. And they laughed and mocked because they said, this temple, just the remodeling project's been going on for 46 years. You know how long Ezra and Nehemiah took to even build it? Took 120 years with the support of all the Persians' king and all their wealth to rebuild this thing. And you think you can tear it down and rebuild it? But the Bible even interprets this. This isn't my interpretation. It even interprets it for you. It says Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. He's the temple of God. He's the nature of God. He's the presence of God. And that was what... All of Ezra and Nehemiah was pointing to the return of the king, and he was there, and like always, most people were blind to it. And not only were they blind to it, they rebelled and were the people in opposition to it. Just like in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. They had their band of brothers working on this project, but they had all the taunters, all the scoffers, all the schemers writing letters back to the king of Persia, doing all these undermining things, and that same thing happens Still, today, people thinking they can undermine the work of God, and they can't. If he has said it by the mouth of the prophets, he will make it true. And he said it by the mouth of the prophets, that he would return, and that the king would return, and that the king would be his very own son, and that he would establish him on the throne of David forever, and he has. And you want to know where Jesus is right now? He's exalted right now. A man, a man, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of God in the power uh, on high. And when he ascended this earth, this is what his ascension, not just the sign of his resurrection, they destroyed his body. And in three days, he raised it from the dead. And then he walked around the earth and appeared to people at one time, 500 at at once. And then in their presence, lifted up and ascended into heaven. What that ascension says is complete victory over death, hell, and all the schemes of the devil. He won them victoriously, and he rules and reigns right now at the right hand of God, a man, Jesus Christ, and he is our only hope. He is the hope that they were hoping in, and Ezra and Nehemiah point to that, and they got to point to it. 
And we get to point to him. And that's all we are is pointers. Pointing to someone greater than us. Pointing to the, the little menial tasks that we do every day. The little dishwashings. Our work that seems menial at times. And all the little things that we do. They're pointing to something great. If you don't have that, you don't have Jesus. Because he is the greatness in your life. And he is the thing that we are to point to just like Ezra and Nehemiah. Can you say amen? Amen. And we love to close and take communion together. Because this points us to, it seems little. Oh, there's a little cracker down here. There's a little grape juice in the top. So what? But it's pointing. And Jesus left this with instructions to do this when we gather together. Because it points us to him and what he said and what his apostles said and his apostle Paul said was to do this in remembrance of him. That's the main thing with, with this is to remember Jesus. Point to him. Point to his body. Point to who he was and is and forever shall be a king on the throne of David. Hallelujah. Nothing can change that. Whew, nothing can change what he said through the mouths of his prophets. He's fulfilled his word. And that's what the Bible's about. That's what it's about. It's about that story and getting excited about that story. Amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks to God for it, always acknowledging God in all things. Every good thing comes from him. He acknowledged bread and he gave thanks to God for it. But he gave us this symbol that this bread was his body given for us. And he said, take and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. Let us do that together. We remember you, Jesus. We remember the return of the king who came and was perfect in all of his ways who the father spoke out of heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased we remember Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the holy nature of God and all the standards of your holy law and perfectly satisfied you and we're only satisfying to you when we point to Jesus and we say he is our righteousness so we look and we partake of the body, remembering Jesus and his perfect obedience and acknowledge him today. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This cup, and what is in it, is the new covenant in my blood. The fruit of the vine represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ in which Jesus said, there is the remission of sins the remission of sins. This is the new covenant. The wiping away, we sing about it, the swallowing of death and sin itself through the blood of Jesus. Powerful victory. And Ezra and Nehemiah were pointing to it. And we thank you, Jesus, and we partake of this in remembrance of you. Let us partake together. Thank you for your gift, Father of your son. Thank you for having the temple rebuilt to just fulfill your word from the prophet Jeremiah. Thank you for having it there so your son could walk into it and return the presence, the power, and the weighty glory of God. 
your son is the exact representation of your nature. We honor him today, and we pray that you would help us honor and praise him with this closing song of worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us sing together.